be acceptable in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. If you have your Bibles, begin turning to Isaiah chapter 6. This morning, we're going to look at a vision of heaven and a picture of a king on the throne in a message titled, Look Unto Me. As you're turning there, our sermon in the sentence for this week is from an anonymous source. And it says, you become like what you look at. You become like what you look at. We're going to look at the power of fixing our eyes on Jesus and what that can do for our hearts and for our lives today. If you find Isaiah 6, 1 through 8 in your Bible, if you please stand for the reading of God's Word. Reading this morning from the English Standard Version. Isaiah 6, starting in verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal, that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And then I said, Here am I. Send me. You may be seated. May God add his blessing to the reading of his holy word. If you'll notice in the text, it begins in verse 1 with a place of uncertainty, one of those moments that no one likes to be in. Isaiah 6, verse 1, the first part says this, in the year that King Uzziah died. I don't know what uncertainty you faced in your life, but the people to which Isaiah is writing are facing a lot of uncertainty because the king is dead. The good king has died, and we don't know what's going to happen in the future. Will the next king be a good king? Will he be a tyrant? What will the future hold? And as we look around at the uncertainty of the world, we see the uncertainty in this text. And you may be here today going, Ben, it's year 2013. Wake up. This king in a faraway land has nothing to do with me. But if you're honest... We have uncertainty we deal with all the time. The uncertainty in your life could be from that medical diagnosis that a doctor gave you and gave you a time frame on the days of your life. That uncertainty could come from things at work. You know, the economy's bad and layoffs are coming and what will the future hold? The uncertainty could be you as a student What do I do for college? How do I make high enough ACT, SAT scores 
to build the right future for myself. Or as a parent, your uncertainty may be that you have a child who's walked away from God. Will they come back to know Christ again? We look around at the uncertainty of the world. But as soon as Isaiah paints a picture of the king dying in the uncertainty of the world, he immediately turns our gaze up. When we look around and feel like our world is falling apart, when we feel like we don't know the answers, when we feel like, where is God? Isaiah directs our gaze up. The rest of verse 1 says this, I saw the Lord. He was seated on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one called out to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. We look around at the uncertainty around us. We need to look up to the king on the throne. As God sits on the throne, he's not looking down into heaven going, what happened there? Let's get all the angels and get everybody to come up with a plan to try to fix this. No, God is seated on a throne. He is sovereign. He is in control. He is God. And no matter what circumstances you may be facing, no matter what uncertainty there may be in your life, there's a God on the throne, and that God is faithful, that God is for you, and that God is with you. We see a king seated on a throne. But it doesn't stop there. The king is worshipped. But before we get to the fact that he's worshipped, notice this. In the text, all we see about God is that his robe filled the temple and we see these seraphim that are described with these wings that cover their hands and head and face and everything else. We see no description of God. As I look at this text and study this text, I think there's a reason we see no description of God himself. Because this description in the seraphim is enough to confuse us already. God is so great, God is so above, God is so incomprehensible that human language itself cannot describe him. Isaiah sits in this text struggling for words here of this God that is so great and does great things. But he's worshipped. We worship this morning. It was good to worship God this morning. And as we worship, we join in with these seraphim who stand constantly before the throne and go, God, you are holy. God, you are great. God, you are worthy. God, you are above all. God, you are awesome. And God deserves every ounce of our worship. And the king is worship. In your notes, you'll see the verse from Revelation. If we were to fast forward in our Bibles to Revelation and go hundreds of years, we see another picture of these same creatures. And check this out. Here's what they're doing. It says in the four living creatures, Revelation 4, 8, each of them with six wings are full of eyes all around and within, and all night and day they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. God is so great, indescribable creatures spend all of eternity 
declaring how great and how awesome he is. When we worship God, we join in with that. When we look at the uncertainty of the world, we look up to a king who is seated, a king who is worshipped, and a king who is holy. Holy comes from the word kadosh in the Hebrew, and it means to be set apart. I got married in March to my lovely wife, Liz, who's here in the front row. And uh, one of the things about getting married that is always fun is you get to go pick out wedding gifts. So we got in the car and went on a venture to a store that men don't like to go to called Bed Bath & Beyond. And as we went into the store, they hand you this gun, which for an ADD person like me, a little gun that you can shoot things with and scan barcodes is pretty awesome. And so I got my gun and we go and we scan everything that we want. Well, as a man, um, one of the things that men think is we are practical. We buy things that have uses. We buy things that have points. And in this process, I learned about a couple things. The first thing is China. China are things that you buy to bring out for your grandkids, or if the President of the United States would somehow show up at your door. But most of the time, it sits in a cabinet and looks decorative. I didn't know what decorative was. Decorative (laughs) equals no point. And so, (laughs) you have the decorative China, and the China is set apart for a special reason. And luckily, Praise the Lord. We did not end up with China. But had we ended up with China. (laughs) But had we ended up with China. And I had happened to go home today after a long day of three services and found me some leftovers and put it on the China and put it in the microwave. That might be the end of my life. (laughs) Because China is holy. China is set apart for a special use. And that special use may be decorative, whatever that means, or if the president comes, but it has a special use and it is set apart as holy. When we think of God, God's in a category by himself. He is holy. He cannot be reduced to our categories to define him. Jerry Bridges says this in your notes about us being holy. To be holy is to be morally blameless. It is to be separated from sin and therefore consecrated to God. The word signifies a separation to God and the conduct benefiting those who are separated. We're going to be holy people. We're set apart for a special use. And that special use is God's kingdom and sharing the gospel and being a part of his work in the world. Tozer said this about God's holiness in your notes. We cannot grasp the true meaning of divine holiness by thinking of someone or something very pure and then raising the concept to the highest degree we are capable. God's holiness is not simply the best we know infinitely better. We know nothing like divine holiness. It stands apart. It's unique, unapproachable, incomprehensible, and unattainable. The natural man is blind to it. He may fear God's power, admire God's wisdom, but his holiness he cannot even imagine. God's holy. He's set apart. He's different. And he is great. When we see the uncertainty around us, we look up to a king on a throne, 
And then we look inside at our own brokenness and the brokenness of our culture. Verse 5 says this, And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. As Isaiah stands in that moment and sees a God on a throne, sees the seraphim that ascribed to him his holiness, and sees the place being filled with smoke, Isaiah realizes he's in quite a predicament. Because guess what? He's not holy. He's broken. And in a place and in a moment of God's perfection, when you're the person who's the one who's not perfect in the room, that creates big-time issues. And he said, woe is me, I'm lost. And when he thinks of his sin, he goes to a place that we wouldn't expect him to go. You know, when we think of sins, we tend to think of big sins like murder and things like that. But he goes to his lips and the things that he says. Because those are important. And he realizes that what he said and the way he's lived and the things that he's let come out of his heart, out of his mouth, have not been glorifying to God. When we see how great God is, when we stand in awe of God, we can't help but realize our own brokenness. Your brokenness. When we catch a glimpse of the holiness of God, we gain a greater understanding of the gravity of our sin. Billy Graham said this, We cannot be satisfied with our goodness after beholding the holiness of God. Spurgeon puts it this way, I believe a holier man becomes the more he mourns over the unholiness that remains in him. Notice that Isaiah deals with his own brokenness before he deals with the brokenness of his culture. As Christians, we're called to take stands for truth. And taking stands for truth is important. But in taking stands for truth, we need to realize that we respond with grace because we have also been forgiven. So when we take our stand, our stand should not be shoving a Bible down someone's throat and shaking a fist in their face. When we look at the brokenness of the world and go and confront people in their sin like we should do, it should be with a tear in our eye and a prayer in our heart. Because we realize that we are the ones who are broken too. And where would we be if not for Jesus? Our brokenness. The brokenness of the broken world. Spurgeon says this to this topic. I do not think a man can be a good missionary if he winks at the sin that surrounds him. Unless it stinks in his nostrils. Unless it makes his soul bowl with holy indignation. Unless, like Paul, his heart is stirred within him, how can he speak unless he should speak the message of his God? We see the uncertainty of the world, the king on the throne, the brokenness in me and in you and in our culture. If we were to end here, our message would have no hope. So Isaiah stands before God condemned in his sin. God responds with grace. We look at the power of grace. Grace is defined as unmerited favor. Something we can't earn through our religious performance. Something we can't earn 
through our church attendance. It's a free gift from God. And in verse 6 and 7 it says this, Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. Forgiveness causes a big issue for God. Because God is holy. God is perfect. God is just. And not a one of us in this room would think a judge was just if the murderer came and stand on, stood on trial and said, I did it. And the judge looked at him and said, you're forgiven. Go and live your life. Grace demands a sacrifice. So 2,000 years ago, God sent Jesus, his son, to live that perfect life that me and you couldn't live, no matter how hard we try, to die the death on the cross that we deserve to die, and to raise again to new life, proving that he was God. Jesus took our place. And so the beauty of atonement and the beauty of this moment and the beauty that the angel can come and tell Isaiah that his sin is taken away is because of Christ and what Christ would do on Isaiah's behalf. We can't miss this. The power of the gospel is that Jesus took our place. Lewis said this, Cost God nothing as far as we know to create nice things. But to convert rebellious wills cost him crucifixion. The power of grace. Do we believe in the power of grace? In the power of God to change a life? Because if we do, the text calls us to do something about it. Grace is something we need each and every day. Grace is not merely the ticket in. Grace is not merely the reason you walked an aisle, prayed a prayer, invited Jesus into your life. Grace is something you need each and every day. Because guess what? We're not where we need to be yet. And God's working on us and changing us and making us more and more like Jesus. So as we look, we see the uncertainty of the world, the king on the throne, the brokenness of the culture and our brokenness, and then the power of grace, which leads us to verse 8. Looking out to a world that needs Jesus. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Then he said, Here am I. Send me. I can imagine this being an awkward moment for Isaiah as he stands there in the presence of God, just amazed over the fact that he's been forgiven. And then God speaks. Who will I send? You can imagine Isaiah looking around maybe. Who's he talking to? Isaiah goes, here I am, send me. Isaiah is willing to be used by God. He's willing to let his life be a life that God uses to change the world. If we think that grace is just for us and our ticket into heaven and has no impact on the world, we've missed the point of the gospel. We're to look out to a world that needs Jesus. Does it bother us? That every day people close their eyes in this life and open their eyes in eternity? Where they will spend eternity forever either in the joy and the presence of God or under the divine 
wrath of God. That divine wrath of God that was so strong on Jesus on the cross that caused him to yell out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Every day. Do we care? Do we notice? Are we too busy being Pelham, Alabama Christians? Or does our faith make a difference in our life? Pascal said this, The serene beauty of a holy life is the most powerful influence on the world next to the power of God. We're called to be holy. And being holy is a witness. But guess what? Being holy isn't so you can get some spiritual hall of fame. You're to be holy so that when a world looks at you, they see something different. They see that you've been changed by God and there's something different about your life. And Pascal says that plus the power of God is an amazing witness. We can't sit in our churches and read our Bibles and do religious things and not speak the truth, though. Because people aren't just going to come up to you. We're called to go to them and to share the truth of who Jesus is and the power that Jesus has to change a life. Because we're people who've been redeemed. We're people who've been changed It's interesting when you look at this text, it parallels Jesus' last words to his disciples, which is his call to us. So the whom shall I send, who will go for us, is not merely a question for Isaiah. That's a question for us in this room. We can't dodge that and get off the hook. In Matthew 28, 19 through 20, we see Jesus' last words. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the very end of the age. Isaiah's call is our call. To go, to tell, and to see what God can do in people's hearts and in people's lives. I want to end with a story. Uh, Paul is going to come up and play, and then we're going to end our time of worship. And this is the story of a famous British pastor. His name is Charles Spurgeon. This is the story of when he came to faith. And it begins like this. I sometimes think I might have been in darkness and despair until now, had had it not been for the goodness of God in sending a snowstorm one Sunday morning while I was going to a certain place of worship. When I could go no further, I turned down a certain street and came to the little primitive Methodist chapel. In that chapel, there may have been a dozen or 15 people. I'd heard of the primitive Methodist, how they sang so loudly that they made people's heads ache, but it didn't matter to me. I wanted to know how I might be saved. And if they could tell me that, it didn't matter how much they made my head ache. The minister didn't come that morning. He was snowed up, I suppose. At last, a very thin-looking man, a shoemaker, a tailor, or something of that sort, went up into the pulpit to preach. Now it's well the preacher should be instructed, but this man, he was really stupid. He was obliged to stick to his text for the simple reason that he had little else to say. The text was, look unto me and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth. He didn't even pronounce the words rightly, but it didn't matter. There was, I thought, a glimpse of hope for me in that text. 
the preacher began thus. My dear friends, this is a very simple text indeed. It says, look. Now look and don't take a deal of pains. It ain't lifting your foot or your finger. It's just look. Well, a man needn't go to college to learn to look. You may be the biggest fool, yet you can look. A man needn't be worth a thousand a year and be able to look. Anyone can look. Even a child can look. But the text says, look unto me. Hey, he said, many are, many of you are looking to yourselves, but there's no use looking there. You'll never find any comfort in yourselves. Some look to God the Father. No, look to him by and by. Jesus Christ says, look unto me. Some of you say we must wait for the Spirit's working. You have no business with that just now. Look to Christ. The text says, look unto me. And then the good man followed up his text in this way. Look unto me. I'm sweating great drops of blood. Look unto me. I'm hanging on the cross. Look unto me. I'm dead and buried. Look unto me. I rise again. Look unto me. I ascend to heaven. Look unto me. I'm seated at the Father's right hand. Oh, poor sinner, look unto me. Look unto me. When he'd gone about that length and managed to spend 10 minutes or so, he came to the end of his message. Then he looked at me under the gallery, and I dare say with so few present, he knew me to be a stranger. Just fixing his eyes on me as if he knew all my heart, he said, young man, you look very miserable. Well, I did, but I'd not been accustomed to having remarks made from the pulpit on my personal appearance before. However, it was a good blow. It struck right at home. He continued, and you will always be miserable, miserable in life and miserable in death if you do not obey my text. But if you obey now in this moment, you will be saved. Then lifting his hands, he shouted as only a primitive Methodist could do. Young man, look to Christ. Look, look, look. You have nothing to do but to look and to live. I saw it once, the way of salvation. I don't know what else he said. I didn't even notice it. I was so possessed with this single thought. Like when the brazen serpent was lifted up and the people that only looked and were healed, so it was with me. I'd been waiting to do 50 things, but when I heard the word look, what a charming word it seemed to me. Oh, I looked until I could have almost looked my eyes away. There and then the cloud was gone. The darkness had rolled away. In that moment, I saw the sun. I could have risen in that instant and sung with the most enthusiastic of them, of the precious blood of Christ and the simple faith which looks alone to Him. Oh, that someone told me this before, trust in Christ and you shall be saved. Yet it was no doubt all wisely ordered. And now I can say, ever since by faith, I saw the stream, thy flowing wounds supply. Redeeming love has been my theme and shall be until I die.
two men represent all of us in this room. First, the simple man, Spurgeon referred to him as stupid, came up and was willing to take a stand and speak the truth of Christ. He might not have studied his Bible enough. He might not have had the best theology. But he was willing to take a stand. And he knew what God had done in his heart and what God had done in his life. And he called people to look to Christ. Today, for many of us in this room, that's our challenge. Who are you calling to look? Because I can guarantee most of us in this room have more education than that man that stood up and said, look. And you can see through the thousands of sermons and the thousands of lives that Charles Spurgeon's ministry impacted, that God worked. The second person is young Spurgeon. Simply wants to know how to be saved doesn't care what it cost him, wants to know that he can look to Christ and live. That may be some of you today. You maybe have never looked to Christ for the first time to find salvation, to find hope, to find peace. He's waiting. Or you may be a believer in this room, and you may have lost sight of what your gaze is fixed on. Your gaze may be fixed on the cares of this world and the uncertainties in your life, and there may be some things that you need to lay down at the foot of the cross this morning. Because no matter how bad we want to be, we're not on the throne of the universe. So let's leave our burdens at the feet of the cross. Because Jesus is the only one that can truly take those. I want to encourage you this morning to respond. Our staff and our prayer team are going to be down here. If you want someone to pray with, if you want to come and look to Christ for the first time, if you have a burden you want us to pray for you about, if you want to come become a member of this church or get baptized, we're going to sing the song that the worship team was singing together. We're going to all rise and sing and respond in these moments. As